You know what you're listening to, right? Three, two, one. Uzima Health and Wellness. What did Dr. say? Hi, Dr. Eric Conrad. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm your host, Dr. Kendra Outler of What the Doctors Say podcast. First of all, you are board certified psychiatrist and you are the director of the Psychosomatic Center for the LSU Health Science Center um, Hospital. Sort of. Yes, I'm the service line director for behavioral health at uh, University Medical Center in New Orleans. So it's kind of like the psychiatric medical director for the services that are provided here. All of the services that are provided at the center? Yes, at University Medical Center. Now, I noticed that you are from Louisiana. You uh, definitely went to LSU undergrad, medical school, and residency. Yes, high school years on, been in Louisiana, and then, yeah, I've been in the LSU system ever since uh, undergraduate. So you, you're, you're bathed in uh, purple and gold, as they say, or is that purple and yellow? What is it, purple and gold? Purple and gold. <laughs> Don't get me in trouble, because we know how much you, you LSU people love LSU, so... <laughs> All right. Now, how did you how did you like undergrad um, at LSU? It's a it's a great state university. Oh yeah, it was it was a, a terrific experience. I was actually an English major uh, mm-hmm. in undergraduate, mm-hmm. and then uh, did the prereqs for medical school at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a terrific experience. I love English. I was a mathematics major, and I think this is an important uh, point here for all of the young people listening to two doctors talk, and that is that you're not a biology major. You know, and how cool is that? Because you bring all this other information to medical school with you. What made you pick English as a major? I just really enjoyed the, the classes. I didn't know that you could get into medical school and not be like a biology major. And so then once I found that out, mm-hmm. it was like, wow, I can just you know take these English classes. And they're mm-hmm. a lot of fun and mm-hmm. really enjoyed them. And then just took the required courses to, that you have to take to get into medical school. So then it was uh, unexpected because I never really liked English either when I was little. Mm-hmm. And, or reading it at all and then <laughs> ended up being an English major yeah did a teacher or a professor all of a sudden change your feeling or love about English uh it was actually a Shakespeare class uh, that took as a freshman mm-hmm. and uh it was this really creative way of looking at things and it was just a lot of fun let me ask you this what's your favorite author or is it Shakespeare are you classical I guess a favorite author would be sort of the Classic uh, Russian authors like uh, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. things along those lines. But like of Crime and Punishment, that's the only Russian book I remember reading of Crime and Punishment. I, you know, we had to read it in, in uh, high school, but after that, I didn't uh, study much more literature. So I went into the mathematics, which is another language, right? That's what we say. And even medicine is another language. And I find it interesting that you're a psychiatrist now because all of this seems to have now, you know, propelled you into this leadership role in psychiatry, because one thing you do as a psychiatrist is listen to people and then you have to write a narrative about them. Am I correct? Yeah, definitely. I think being able to relate to people in a different manner mm-hmm. than, you know, being you know too stiff or, you know, mm-hmm. just uh, thinking about the biologic aspect of mm-hmm. a person's life mm-hmm. is important if you're going to go into psychiatry. What else do you love besides English and psychiatry? Tell me about yourself. Well, I like going out to eat. Being in New Orleans is a ideal spot for that. Terrific restaurants. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, just following the Saints and the Pelicans. <laughs> Are you a family mm-hmm. man? 
yeah, uh, married and have uh, five kids. Wonderful. That's wonderful. You know, we like to eat in the South. We like big families. We like big family gatherings. So I can tell you're a Southerner. Where are you originally from? Where are your parents from? So my mom is from New Orleans and my dad was from the Midwest. Okay. Okay. Because I tell people that, you know, we describe uh, New Orleans as the New York of the South. You know, people can, can forget how varied that New Orleans is as a city in the South. And so, you know, we have a large Vietnamese community there. You have a large South American community there, generations, I mean, of people who have come from other countries and made New Orleans the great place that it is. I mean, if you haven't spent time there, I think that all the places in the States, it's a great city to go visit. My neighbors are from Brazil and they're taking a trip to New Orleans before they go back to Brazil. So I highly encouraged it. You have been in the New Orleans area. You've trained at LSU Health Science Center. You've done your residency there. So you probably have a really good perspective of like a timeline of, you know, major events for the city. One thing I'm thinking of is just, you know, maybe take me through some historical things like maybe I'm dating myself, 80s, 90s of things that have shaped the medical community um, in terms of a need. Well, I guess the big turning point that I think is, you know, was obvious was uh, with Hurricane Katrina. When that happened and uh, Charity Hospital was shut down. And then we had the you know, some like uh, interim hospital locations for the trauma center, and then the building of the new hospital at University Medical Center, which is now where we are now, has really you know provided a lot of growth for the different departments, uh, especially for psychiatry. So that's been you know it was really starting over from from scratch, and then building up from there to the comprehensive services that we that we have now. So the question is, we have to, a little bit about the, the charity healthcare system. Can you give me a little historical perspective? Because you trained a big charity, I presume. Yeah. And so Charity Hospital, you know, it's the, well, University Medical Center as its successor is the second oldest hospital uh, in the country. And so the hospital, the original, you know, big charity was vital to the safety net, you know, catchment uh, hospital. For the underinsured or uninsured, and also it's the you know level one trauma center, so all the serious injuries were brought there. You know, it didn't matter if you had insurance or not; it was the, the place to, to go if, if you were seriously injured. And that you know legacy is still with us today, with the University Medical Center still acting as a safety net hospital. Doesn't matter as far as your insurance goes, and it's also the place for training for LSU and Tulane schools of medicine and their programs. So the question I have is, Old Charity had how many psychiatric beds and does the new University Medical Center of New Orleans have the same number of psychiatric beds? Mm, I have to double check, but Charity had somewhere in the 90s mm -hmm. as far as the number of beds and University Medical Center has 60 inpatient beds but we also have more outpatient services. So there really wasn't an outpatient psychiatry clinic associated with Charity Hospital. It was the public mental health clinics that then served as the outpatient clinics. Uh, but now we have a new outpatient clinic that, or an outpatient center that has within it a general psychiatry clinic, an addiction psychiatry clinic, a general intensive outpatient program, and an addiction intensive outpatient program. And we also have integrated clinics. So Speaking about you know gun violence with our uh, trauma recovery clinic, it's uh, psychology, psychiatry, social work that are embedded within the trauma surgery outpatient clinic. 
So if the surgeons notice someone that's uh, you know having difficulty after a serious injury, we're right there in the clinic where they can sort of hand them off and say, hey, you know, we have somebody we could talk to or that specializes in this, and then you know, they'll introduce us to the patient. Also, it's easier for the patients, you know, sort of like a one-stop shop where if they need to come in and get, you know, sutures taken out or whatever, it's also in the same location where they would come and see uh, psychiatry or psychology. You went on and explained the uh, trauma clinic. What I want to ask you in terms of your historical perspective, you're seeing a reformulation of where, how you trained as a resident and now in this leadership role, how you deliver psychiatry. So I guess, tell me some of the benefits that you see by having this new framework of maybe not so many inpatient beds, but have now have deployed smaller clinics to, to work with the community as uh, the varied needs, you know, are presented. Yeah, so I think it's a different model of care where you have uh, integrated, it's called collaborative care, where you can work within uh, a clinic. So we have psychiatry in trauma surgery clinic. We also have psychiatry embedded in the OB clinic, mm-hmm. like a perinatal psychiatry clinic. Um, also within the, I guess the oldest model that's been around for quite a while is, is psychiatric and psychological care within the HIV clinic. And then presence in the oncology clinic, uh, in the GI clinic. So all these different locations also helps, I think, you know, with access Mm-hmm. for patients. And then it also helps with, I guess, specialization. So if you have a group of people that do nothing but PTSD and depression following a physical injury, if you have a physical injury and then are dealing with depression, PTSD, you're going to see people that you know, know exactly what they're doing to, mm-hmm. to help out. And I think your quality of, of care improves. It's the same thing as if, if you're, you're shot and then you're brought to just a regular community hospital, your odds of survival is not as good as being brought to the level one trauma center. So you have people that specialize in that and do that, nothing but that over and over. Mm-hmm. Uh, the quality of the care is going to be much, much better. Okay, so you're seeing an upward, you're seeing a more focused um, ability to treat patients more specifically, kind of like anesthesia in my specialty. I mean, we don't have to do general for every case. You know, we can now tailor the anesthesia for the patient and the surgery and what we need to do. You have a background in psychosomatic psychiatry, not even a background. You've written a number of papers and done a number of presentations. Before we get into the trauma clinic, tell me about that work and what's most passionate about that for you. Well, that's the old name for what's now referred to as consultation liaison psychiatry. That's the subspecialty of psychiatry that does the consults throughout the medicine and surgical force in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so we created a fellowship for that a number of years ago, and that's grown and, and the fellowship has grown and faculty for that has, has grown. And I think that's been a lot of, I guess, you know, the best part, I think, of being able to have a leadership role is developing, you know, new programs like that. Mm-hmm. And so the CL fellowship, which has now been going on for like, uh, I guess, over 10 years now, has really improved, I think, also the relationships between psychiatry and the rest of the hospital in general. Um, so you have people that are, you know, very responsive. Again, you know, it's just more of a subspecialization. If, if you have a psychiatrist that's, you know, feels very comfortable mm-hmm. going into the, the ICU and dealing with patients that are, you know, have tubes and, and all sorts of drips, you know, going on. Whereas if you're not doing that every day, you know, you're not particularly comfortable in that sort of situation. And then, you know, your recommendations may not be as, as effective. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really nice part of the, the continued growth of the subspecializations within the department. So specifically, by having the ability to interface with internal medicine and the other teams like surgery, you are helping those teams decide if there's a psychiatric need or this is part of the patient's, you know, disease sequela or trauma sequela. Is that that's what I'm understanding from you? Right. So we get consulted for all sorts of different reasons. It might be, you know, if somebody is hallucinating or really agitated, is this, you know, is this because of the infection that they have and it's causing their brain to act that way? Mm-hmm. Or do they have an underlying, you know, primary psychiatric diagnosis like like schizophrenia or something? And so we help tease that out and then also help determine, you know, what's going to be the best treatment plan going forward. So that those kind of things is really common. Also get consulted for depression or PTSD in patients uh, dealing with uh, their illness in the hospital. Also get consulted to help with addiction in the hospital. Somebody, let's say they they get admitted to the hospital because of an infection, because of IV, you know, heroin use, then they'd start going through withdrawal and then they'll consult us to help manage the withdrawal or place yeah. them on a you know, maintenance you know, agonist therapy or some other agent. You know, I think just like, you know, people ask me what, what cases are you, you, you enjoy or you are very interesting. I personally do like working with my psychiatrist. You know, we tease each other. I'll say, oh, there's my favorite anesthesiologist. And he'll say, oh, there's my favorite psychiatrist because he actually was a, a anesthesiologist in this country. And so when he came to the U.S., he retrained as a psychiatrist. So I enjoy talking to him about the cases and understanding, you know, more and more about ECT, uh, electroconvulsion therapy. Has that evolved from this kind of very uh, dark ages type of perspective? Educate us on electroconvulsive therapy. Yeah, so that's that's come a long ways from what's depicted in horror films or you know, old movies and stuff yeah. like that. So, and one of the keys is you know the anesthesia providers being there and making sure that the patient is you know asleep and then all their muscles are totally relaxed and then the electricity is you know, delivered and it's not like mm-hmm. uh, somebody having a full body, you know, thrashing sort of seizure. It's just their, their brain having a seizure that's monitored and then the seizures you know, last about a minute. Mm-hmm. And then um, the patient wakes up after about five minutes. You know, so the whole procedure itself, you know, is like 10, 15 minutes tops. And then the patients you know, come to and then they're observed in the um, recovery room area. Mm-hmm. And then either go back to the inpatient unit or go back you know, outpatient you can go home and do whatever. Set drop, you're not supposed to drop it. So you do have a you have a an ECT therapy uh, service, I'm sure, as a tertiary care center, and you're recommending which type of cases typically end up needing ECT therapy. It's usually cases that are you know refractory to medications and you know, psychotherapy. Usually, people have failed a number of different medications and different trials of different agents, mm-hmm. and then uh, ECT would then be indicated. Mm-hmm. And so it's usually patients also that are just, you know, very severely ill to the point where, you know, they're, they're losing weight and they're not eating and not moving around. I guess the most dramatic cases are when people are catatonic mm-hmm. and that's basically not, you know, moving or speaking at all. And then um, the ECT have had some really dramatic results where you know, people come out of it mm-hmm. and it's, it's like bringing somebody out of a, out of a coma. Mm-hmm. basically and it's um that's you were saying like what's the you know sort of favorite cases i think the 
and the catatonic patients that we're able to help. And the nice thing is that ECT works like 90 plus percent of the time mm -hmm. in catatonics. It's like the more severely ill you are, the better the results are. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the catatonic cases, it's often very dramatic and the families are really amazed. You know, it's like bringing somebody back from the dead, basically. It's pretty remarkable, even what uh, we can do now with all of the therapies. And again, this is when cases are refractory to medications, and uh, this is a, about a quality of life for the patient. So, you know, speaking of, you know, these cases that are very severe, you know, trauma can actually make someone severely depressed, catatonic even. So, you know, this concept of these acute trauma clinic, I find amazing. I mean, you all have been developing this uh, clinic. Is it a new idea for a major medical center? So I'd like for you to uh, kind of introduce us to this concept, please. Yeah, so it was started over five years ago. We've got a Baptist Community Ministries grant to create this clinic. And so it's basically having uh, psychiatry and psychology and social work embedded uh, within the trauma surgery clinic. Mm -hmm. And then specializing in treating patients that have been injured and admitted as like a, a trauma activation that and, and their families. And so if somebody's, you know, loved one, you know, is severely injured, you know, it affects the entire family. And so we'll also you know, see the, the family members of people that have had a serious injury. We have a, a proactive consultation built into the, all the trauma surgery patients. So on the trauma surgery admit orders, it's an automatic check box to consult trauma psychology. And so psychology goes around and screens all of the trauma surgery patients mm -hmm. for you know, depression, PTSD symptoms, substance abuse problems, mm -hmm. and then uh, the potential for violence themselves if they were a victim of violence. And then anything that comes up with any of the screeners, the patients are then treated you know, appropriately there you know, in the hospital while they're in the hospital and then are referred to the outpatient uh, trauma recovery clinic embedded in the trauma surgery clinic. You would think like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. You know, people are coming in, they've just been shot, they've just been mangled in a car accident or whatever. Of course, they're going to have a psychologist or a psychiatrist see the patient. And it's like, well, that's actually not the case. It is now a requirement for level one trauma centers to do some sort of screening, but that's it. And it's often carried out by like the nurse on the floor. So having the, the expertise at the bedside immediately following you know, some sort of accident like that, and then also being able to follow up in a specialized clinic embedded mm -hmm. within the trauma surgery clinic is actually very rare. I'm only aware of a handful of other hospitals that have a similar setup. And then we also have outpatient support groups Mm -hmm. for the patients uh, and their families. And, um, you know, also, you know, liaison or, or have a lot of back and forth with people in the community. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, somebody, they ended up being shot because they're living a, you know, a lifestyle that uh, involves, you know, substance abuse or things like that. And then to get out of it, what, what do you need? And it's like, well, I never graduated high school. I just need a job. And so it's okay. Well, we have people that we partner with in the community that you can go get your GED, you know, or some sort of skill, and then you know, get a job that doesn't involve substances or dangerous lifestyle. Let me ask you this. Uh, so it sounds, you know, in theory, like a smooth machine, but we know in medicine, there's no, uh, you know, utopia, perfect scenario, right? Mm -hmm. So as you're, you know, carving out some of the challenges to this concept, which I think is absolutely wonderful and definitely much needed, 
especially in a level one trauma center, what are some of your challenges? I think making sure that the, the patients are, are aware of the resources that are available. So it's, first of all, it's, you know, catching everybody, you know, and make sure that people know that you know, we're here and that the treatments are available and that, you know, mm-hmm. if they need something, all they have to do is basically ask. And I think a lot of times there's barriers that come up on just be you know, stigma about, you know, seeking help for any sort of like mental health. A lot of times it's transportation. Yes. People or, you know, just don't know where to go or how to get to an appointment, you know, those sort of things. And so those just kind of like basic, know where to go, know to ask for help and mm-hmm. don't be embarrassed or, you know, ashamed. And then, you know, just trying to make sure that somebody can actually get there. I hate to interrupt. That's an important issue, the barriers. And so one of the things that was discussed um, by a recent uh, a book I read by Hurricane Katrina and, and some of the aftermath and health disparities and racism in terms of the social dis- determinants of health, uh, where you live, we're uncovering more about uh, systemic racism in terms of housing and also transportation and environmental challenges like how we destroy trees in certain areas. So transportation was one that I never explored as much, but of course we saw that with the devastation with Hurricane Katrina where, you know, people were like, why didn't they evacuate? Well, people didn't have transportation. So will the advent of telehealth um, help with a traumatized patient for you to be effective and to, to make sure that maybe you know, all of the people who go to the clinic who don't have phones or, you know, are, are you employing some type of, you know, partnership so that you can make sure that maybe you can employ telehealth appointments so that you don't have that challenge? Yeah. So that's a good byproduct of the pandemic was that uh, everything's totally set up now within the clinics to provide telehealth visits. And so and it's also helpful, let's say you have somebody who's been, you know, just thinking of the case in particular is severely injured, now is in a, mm-hmm. a wheelchair and you know, has a, a, a catheter for their, their bladder and, and yes. all this sort of stuff. And so they're not the mm-hmm. most active you know, people to, to get out and come to a clinic visit. And so, but that person is able to continue to be seen via telehealth because it was already all set up and it was, you know, it was difficult. Even the things that are sort of built in through like uh, Medicaid, like Medicaid transportation and things like that, uh, unfortunately, that's also rather unreliable. Nobody's on time, <laughs> that sort of stuff. So it just makes it very difficult. And so the ability to do it on another platform, you know, even if it's just, you know, calling somebody on the phone, you know, it can make it, make it a lot easier as far as, you know, eventually getting access. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, so that is a, a one of the positive byproducts. I mean, we rolled out telehealth medicine and it's not rolling rolling back in. I've heard physicians say, you know, it actually has helped me to visualize where my patient has to go back to when they left me. And I never really kind of factored that into my care plan. Um, I can look at the ceiling. I can see how many people are in the room. I can see kind of what they're sitting on and and what have you. So I think it it has given us a, the good thing is a better perspective about uh, who our patients really are and their conditions um, that they live in. So let's talk about uh, what are the future expansion plans on this idea and, and actually what you have in place of the uh, trauma clinic? I mean, what would be, you know, like say the year rollout? Well, it's something that we're, we're looking into currently is the, how to, you know, uh, expand services. I think that, you know, there's more patients that, you know, we definitely see, and there's also different sets of patients. So currently the clinic is not 
really geared towards like domestic violence or, or things like that. It's a huge part of violence. Yeah, that's something that if, if we get the you know funding uh, mm -hmm. and, and support for it, where we could expand to not just you know physical trauma that's been admitted to the hospital, you know, but uh, any sort of violent victims of crime uh, throughout the entire city, and so that would be more of a trauma recovery center. And there are models for that in other yeah. cities where that's the, the primary focus, and it's can be hospital-based or not, but we would look at it hopefully being hospital-based at the University Medical Center and then, you know, have the expertise and the manpower between you know, psychiatry and psychology and social okay. workers and to help, you know, case management. Because once you're a victim of crime, you know, let's say there's a you know tragedy associated with it, um, there's lots of things that you need somebody to explain, you know, well, these are the, the legal routes that, you know, to take and and things like that. So part of it would be built in sort of advocacy where you just have somebody that can help explain what's going on with uh, all the complexities that are involved. So right now, are you able to provide uh, specific intimate partner violence or you're saying that you need to build that into the whole trauma? Yeah, that would be a, an area for us to expand because um, right now that's not part of the routine uh, referral pattern. What about children, child abuse cases? So our hospital is primarily for adults, and we do have children's oh, hospital that specializes right. in you know child and adolescent cases. And so those those probably be referred over there, but they you know have that sort of expertise. Okay. So are you able to help children who've experienced trauma, which with this gun violence epidemic, I'm sure it's happening. Yeah. So there's um, psychology and psychiatry that you know child and adolescent psychiatrists and psychologists that uh, yeah. specialize, and so that referral pattern is in place. That's not something that we do here at the hospital, but okay. we know who does it. So talk to me finally about uh, the issue of gun violence in New Orleans. I mean, you've been there for many years. You've seen, I'm sure, uh, some of the challenges of the city. Tell me, uh, you know, what's going on in the 504, as they say in the NO. How are you characterizing as a psychiatrist this version of gun violence? Yeah, it definitely uh, has increased since the pandemic. So looking just at the types of uh, assaults that are brought to the hospital, the percent increase has happened, you know, from like 2019 to 2020 for not as many car accidents and like people weren't driving around and stuff, but there were an increase in the percentage of assaults, whether stabbings or gunshot wounds. Like as of, you know, this past few months, uh, we've seen a percent increase in the trauma activations at the hospital, you know, anywhere from, you know, 10 to 30% per month, depending upon the month. From so, your, let, me, let me interrupt you, doctor. You wrote uh, in this report I was reading about your center, it was said that there are about three to 400 trauma activations a month. And so you're saying you're up from that baseline? Yes. And so now it's, we're looking at as far as March of 2022, there are uh, 448 trauma activations. And so, and they're looking to, you know, possibly break, you know, 500 a month. So the amount of injuries that are occurring, it's definitely, definitely increased. And it, it seems to be a lot of uh, gunshot wounds that might be driving the numbers. So the question is, you said we're, we're dating this since COVID, but if COVID hadn't happened, I guess my question is, would the line of cases still been steady? So we had a drop because we had a pandemic. The question is, can you say in the early 90s, this is really the same number, guys? Hmm. Well, I think the, so 
early 90s, there were more people in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. and the population took a dive after Katrina. Correct. And then the numbers have slowly been going up uh, ever since, as far as the population and also the trauma activations. I got you. What role does drugs have on this? I mean, when I was there working, I did not appreciate that there was, you know, this deregulation of pain clinics and, you know, they called it the Holy Trinity. You know, they wanted Soma's methadone, Lortabs and, you know, 90 day supplies. What are some of the compounding problems that you're having with this gun violence spike? Is it drugs alone? Mm, I don't know. That's definitely, there's been an increase in lately. It's a lot of uh, methamphetamines and heroin uh, seem to be the the drugs of choice. Really? Uh, there there a lot of, we see a lot of that in the, like the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as that being a direct correlation with uh, gun violence, I'm not sure if that can be proven or not. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you know, the gun violence may have nothing to do with drug use at all. Mm-hmm. What about alcohol? I mean, we, we try to, we have to remember that alcohol is a drug. Mm-hmm. And yeah, some, some cases, uh, I think, you know, that's also you know, at play. But I think the majority of the patients that are involved, they come in as a gunshot wound activation. You know, there's often not any sort of substance or alcohol. Mm-hmm. So as you build this out over the next year, you need, of course, resources, which would be staffing and funding. That's going to be vital to moving this project forward, let's say, for a five-year plan. Mm-hmm. And um, what other community partners, you know, that you have so that as you build, you have this, I guess, a coalition of community partners. Um, would you like to acknowledge them as growing with the acute trauma clinic? Yeah, we, we have a, a lot of people that we've been uh, partnering with over the years and then also that are helping us try to pursue grant funding mm-hmm. that will hopefully bring this all together in, in, a, in a much larger scale. Mm-hmm. You will tell the make sure we acknowledge some of those on the broadcast. So who who are we talking about? And I hope no one, if you leave somebody out there, understand that you meant well. <laughs> yeah, because you're be on the spot here. <laughs> I should have like a, a list of uh, a list of names that yeah, I wouldn't want to just you know okay, okay. shoot from the hip. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we want to make sure that we know that this is not only a university health science center effort that what you do can't be done without community partners and it can't be done, you know, without the support of, of course, uh, funding, you know, we need to make sure that good talent uh, knows that, you know, New Orleans has uh, a very forward thinking model for psychiatric care. I think that's important for anybody, you know, to know about New Orleans. You you have a large uh, catchment area, you border Baton Rouge. Does their big baby charity still open in Baton Rouge? And you have Our Lady of the Lakes. Yeah, uh, the Earl K. Long Hospital. Earl K. Long. Long. That's what it was called. Their baby yeah, charity. Uh huh. That yeah, that that closed, and so those training programs that were over there were then absorbed into Our Lady of the Lake. Okay, so then are you the referral area all the way down to Baton Rouge and 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 up to how far? What is your catchment area? Well, I guess it depends on, you know, what the illness is. So for the ECT program, we have people that come all the way from Mississippi to, to Lafayette. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, and people need to understand that it's not just the city of New Orleans. You have your, not your duty is to take care of uh, people around the state that, and if you're the nearest trauma or center, they will be flown to you, right? Yeah. So it's really the, the region. It's also, we have a trauma 
you know, surgery and, and we have a burn unit. Mm -hmm. And so the, a lot of the burn patients are brought in from all over the region mm -hmm. because of the specialized care that they can receive here. And all the burn patients also, it's similar to the trauma surgery patients. They're all screened by a psychologist and mm -hmm. then will have access to seeing psychiatry and psychology in the outpatient setting also. Mm -hmm. So the question I have for you last, uh, <laughs> What if someone were to visit New Orleans, what dish would you tell them to try? <laughs> Just go to any good restaurant. Not hard to find. You see what they have. Right? <laughs> I wouldn't narrow it down to just one dish. Yeah, it's not hard to find. Well, I always enjoy uh, beignets. I always have to have that. And I always get a seafood fried platter. So that's the one time that I allow myself to indulge in a whole bunch of seafood at one time. Uh, but I do wish, um, in all seriousness, I applaud the city of New Orleans and uh, the work that you and Dr. Rajo and Dr. Bailey are doing to push forward this concept of the acute trauma clinic and hopefully will be an acute trauma center. I have not heard of other areas uh, that are around you, at least Jackson, Mississippi or Memphis doing this. So I think that for the region, it's definitely going to be something that's definitely needed. Do you have any kind of encouraging words about uh, what you're doing that you want to share? Well, I think it's, you know, high likelihood that, you know, with enough effort and uh, with all of our community partners, that we hopefully we'll be able to pull this off and, and create an expansion of the, the clinic into a national center. And I think that administration in the hospital is also in favor of it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's been a lot of work to get to this point and, and hopefully it'll, it'll come to fruition. Do you have a magic number that you need for the funding? Well, that's actually part of the process right now is to solidify the, the budget. And so mm -hmm. that's something we're working on currently. Okay. All right. Well, I'll check back in with you all because again, as we uh, see this uh, gun violence surge, we have to look for different uh, initiatives around the state U.S., and uh, see which ones are working. And hopefully we'll have some solid answers as we uh, survey and, and, and get ourselves out of this, you know, I don't say pickle is just too, not, not the right word, but you know what I mean, this predicament in terms of gun violence and community violence as you characterize it. So um, let me let you go. I know you're very busy and I thank you for your time. Thank you very much. All right, we'll talk soon. What the doctor say?